If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's radio fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. When it comes to following the lectionary, as Lori and I do most Sundays, life is like a box of chocolates. Or so said the wise and visionary Forrest Gump, you never know what you're going to get. Last Sunday, Lori drew Reign of Christ Sunday, which uh, seems to happen to her every year. And because we prefer around here to talk about following Jesus instead of worshiping Christ, and we're not very Trinitarian, this can be a problem, the reign of Christ. So because what goes around comes around, this morning I drew an apocalyptic text to start Advent. And as you might imagine, I'm not big on apocalyptic texts. I come by this bias naturally, having spent my whole life around people who use the fear of the future and what they pretend to know about it to manipulate people. This world of prophecy, as it's known in fundamentalist circles, is forever finding codes in the Bible that indicate that the end is near. And all we need to do is repent, sell everything we own, and give it to the preacher. How many times has someone claimed to know when the world was coming to an end, the date, the time, the hour, and people gathered on some hillside and stared at the sky until, say, an hour passed, and the preacher said something about things only happen when God is ready, and the date gets reset, and we start all over again. We just passed the 40th anniversary of the mass suicide at Jonestown, which was really mass murder, I was in seminary at Phillips in 1978 when this news came, the deaths of over 900 people at a supposedly utopian compound in Guyana. It was announced at coffee hour by the dean. Jim Jones was a Disciples of Christ minister and Phillips is a Disciples of Christ seminary. And so we stared at the pictures of these dead bodies and wondered how religion can go this terribly wrong. It was because Jim Jones told them he knew the future and the CIA was coming to get them and they needed to die with dignity to commit what he called revolutionary suicide. It was at Jonestown, after all, that we got the now common phrase to drink the Kool-Aid. I am wary of apocalyptic texts for other reasons as well. Because they are a central part of the worldview of the Christian right, I know that as things continue to deteriorate in the Middle East, 
There are millions of true believers who think that God has already determined when Christ will return and the rapture will occur. By some twisted interpretation of scripture, it's believed that this cannot occur unless Israel is in possession of certain biblical lands given to them by God. Too bad about the Palestinians. According to the Left Behind series, they're doomed anyway. I must confess, I had a rather dark fantasy about our, our opening hymn, the familiar and haunting Advent standard, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. What if we started singing it this way? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Palestine that mourns in lonely exile here until the child of God appear. O come, O wisdom from on high, and take down walls far and nigh to us the path of knowledge show and help us in the two-state way to go. But I digress. Or maybe not, because what's at stake is this. Who owns the future? Who gets to predict it? And what does that say about our understanding of God, of the life of faith, and even of Jesus? Which brings me to another reason why I'm not crazy about preaching the apocalyptic texts. I don't believe Jesus ever said these words. I believe that Mark, and then later Matthew and Luke, using Mark as their primary source, placed them into the mouth of Jesus as a way of making it seem he had predicted the destruction of the temple nearly four decades after his crucifixion. That event was so horrific, so cataclysmic, that scholars wonder, rightly, if people thought it was a sign that Jesus was right all along, not about predicting the destruction of the temple, but in his judgment against the temple itself and the way religion was practiced there. Was his so-called cleansing of the temple where he used a whip to drive out money changers and called the place a den of robbers really a foreshadowing of the temple's destruction in 70 CE? As the decades wore on and Jesus did not return and the kingdom did not come, despite words he's reported to have spoken, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Mark writes the first gospel in the smoldering ashes of the temple in ruins. Several decades later, Matthew picks up his pen to write his gospel and then Luke followed a decade, maybe more later, both included the apocalyptic words of Jesus. And so, if Jesus did say these things, Jesus was wrong. Just want to let that hang there for a minute. <laughs> these things, meaning his return and the final judgment and the coming of the reign of God did not happen. Well, we say he's a human after all, nobody gets it right all the time. Or we might consider that those predictions were placed in his mouth by gospel writers eager to persuade a dubious crowd of Jews who did not believe the Messiah had come and who now mocked this cult of Jesus' followers by reminding them daily, well, he hasn't come back yet, your guy. He hasn't come back. Well, that's true. But wait and watch, wait and watch. And remember, he did predict that whole temple destruction thing. There's a great ongoing debate among biblical scholars concerning whether Jesus was really an apocalyptic prophet. And his Sermon on the Mount 
ethic was radical because he believed the world was about to come to an end. Well, so you might as well travel light, not worry about food, clothing, and shelter, and consider yourself one of the lilies of the field, which bloom today but tomorrow is thrown into the oven, or, or as Lori said last Sunday, that he knew that power is exercised over people when they believe there's not enough for everyone. When the myth of scarcity is the empire's propaganda, turning us against one another in fear instead of the truth, which is that we have an abundance. Abundance is God's true nature. So over the centuries, whenever the moon would turn red, or there was a total solar eclipse, or a comet streaked across the sky, people believed based on these apocalyptic texts that they were witnessing the signs of distress among the nations. And this continues to this day. In the 24th chapter of Matthew are these words, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. So, to sum up, an increase in false messiahs, an increase in warfare, an increase in famine, an increase in plagues, an increase in natural disasters, these are the signs of the end times. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Just consider a few of the things that are happening now. Vladimir Putin, who stole the Crimea Peninsula without consequence, and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, gave each other a big happy high five at the G20 summit on Friday. And why not? They belong to a very special fraternity of dictators who get away with murder. Now a 7.0 earthquake rattles the southern coast of Alaska, Put this together with the greatest humanitarian disaster of our time in Yemen, add a flood of refugees around the world, including at our southern border, who, in the words of that Luke has Jesus speak, are fainting from fear. And then don't forget the forest fires that took my little brother's house and that incinerated less fortunate people in their sleep, or our own government's unequivocal conclusion that global climate change will bring the real apocalypse if we don't act, and then our supreme leader said he doesn't believe the findings of the government he leads, and who can blame people for saying, yet again, the end is near? I think the end is not near. Who can blame people for looking at the sky sometimes and begging for an intervention? Human beings, as it turns out, are primarily fascinated by two things, beginnings and endings. They want to know how we got here and what our fate might be. And we know that when things turn dark, as they feel lately, apocalyptic fear rises. When times are good, on the other hand, apocalyptic fever subsides because, you know, things are better. They don't want the party to end. But I want you to know something this morning from this pulpit I do not believe. I do not believe this all the way down to the marrow of my bones. I do not believe that if we destroy this planet and one another, it will be God's judgment on us. On the contrary, that such belief hurts our chances to act in such a way that we might save ourselves and the future of our species.
all of the things I just mentioned as signs of the end are the fault of human beings. If we perish, it will be an apocalypse of consequences, not an apocalypse of judgment. I don't believe in that kind of God. However, I do believe in the kind of human whose birth we await once more in the season of Advent. Not because he will save us, but because he will show us what it means to be a human being fully alive. Advent unsettles our notions of a God of distant transcendence, high above the clouds, directing some long-running play called When Will the Curtain Come Down and Who Will Make It Out of the Theater Alive? Advent shows us instead a God of eminence, who as the Son of Man will show us, notice not the Son of God, but that's another sermon, eliminates any notion that love is far from us or that God is not near to us. And what is this God's name? What do we call this God of eminence? Justice. Now you might have expected me to say love, that God is love. We've heard that forever, but That word, love, is so hopelessly compromised by narcissism and commercialism, we may need to reconsider. Justice is what God wants, and that's why we're singing about a baby from now until Christmas and not about a lover or a politician or a supreme leader who will solve all our problems. Rather, in the paradox of all paradoxes, upside downness, thy name is Advent, This baby will grow up to be a teacher who will tell us how to solve these problems ourselves. By the way, we live by the way we live, not by the doctrines we sign off on. So, where does faith come into the picture, you ask? What about faith? Simple. We believe against all odds that we can do this in partnership with God, that when we do what we can, where we are with what we have, and leave the rest up to this mystery that connects all things to all things, we embody trust, which is a much better name for faith than faith. It is not in the destruction of the world that we trust and us getting out of it by some special pass but in the redemption of the world. That's what we trust in, the redemption of the world. That's why we will stand up and raise our heads because our redemption is drawing near. But this redemption will not be engineered by a God of transcendence, a monarch in the heavens, the top of the cosmic food chain, whatever metaphor you like. Our redemption will be built by human beings who recognize the eminence of God, the God who's with us, in us, right next to us, even in the face of the stranger, the emigrant, or in the breath of a baby born in poverty on a cold Palestinian night. Thank God there were no checkpoints in those days between a mother in labor and the manger. Where are your papers? Because her delivery is our deliverance. Advent, thy name is upside downness. Besides, the last reason I run away from apocalyptic texts is that they ignore the good things that none of us saw coming. None of us. Because we live, you know, in an electronic mass media village, 
And in the news business, they have a saying, if it bleeds, it leads. We spend a lot more time on bad news than on good news. And then people drag their frightened bodies into church and say, so preacher, uh, where is the good news? It's not on the news. I'll tell you where the good news is. I've got the good news right here. Do you know what this is? I know it's a long way away from you. It's just a little piece of concrete with some graffiti on one side. Do you know what this is? This is a piece of the Berlin Wall. On Thursday night, November 9th, 1989, after Mikhail Gorbachev allowed East Berliners to travel to the West with only a stamp and the guards stood down, a sea of humanity celebrated one of the most electric moments in human history. I remember the following Sunday here and making a simple announcement that was met with cheers. I said, the wall is coming down. And no one thought, what wall? Perhaps the world's primary symbol of the futility of walls was the Berlin Wall, since all walls fail in the end, so we should stop building them. East and West Berliners jubilantly began tearing it down with sledgehammers, and this is one of the pieces. Then a church member in Germany brought me home this piece of history. It's one of my most cherished possessions. It's a chunk of you just never know. Here's what I remember most about that moment. No one saw it coming. And by no one, I mean no one. Not a single politician, pundit, commentator, or historian predicted that the Soviet Union would suddenly implode with a whimper. Without a single shot fired, Gorbachev, who in my mind is the greatest reformer of the 20th century, did not have to make it happen, he simply had to decide not to keep it from happening. And he did. It was a failed system and no wall could save it, not even a big, beautiful wall that West Germany would pay for. <laughs> George Herbert Walker Bush was president of the United States when the Berlin Wall came down. His death is but another reminder of how much we seem to be missing people who used to lead this country because, well, let's face it, we miss decency and integrity. When asked why he did not go to Germany to celebrate this momentous occasion, Bush said, no, what would I do? Dance on the wall? That would not be, to quote his favorite and most parodied line, prudent, not, wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> Dana Carvey, who can forget, it would also have given the disgraced Soviet Union a chance to use our chest-thumping victory dance as a weapon against us. Instead, the elder Bush made it clear that the United States would do whatever it could to help Gorbachev through a dangerous and complicated moment. But to go to Berlin to make a speech or hold a rally or talk about this being the greatest victory over evil in the history of the world even though it was in fact the Iron Curtain that fell out of consideration for the losing side, the President of the United States chose not to brag about it. Starting to miss those days. So I will continue 
to hold apocalyptic texts at arm's length, not because there's nothing to worry about these days, but because I worry most about those who say there's nothing we can do about it. That's false prophecy. We can welcome more and more people to the table if we decide to tear down walls and add a leaf to make the table bigger, but only if we know where our loyalties lie. As Lori likes to say, all of us need all of us to make it. Which means, I guess, that the sheep and the goats of the great judgment are really going to just have to share the planet. And if we keep thinking we need a wall or prison camps for brown kids that have been separated from their parents, then we had better not sing Christmas carols like we don't have a clue. Doomsday prophets always have something to sell us. Remember that. But the baby born in the manger has something to give us. Trust, trust in a God of judgment. I'm sorry, a God of justice. It's a J word, but it's a big difference. <laughs> trust in a God of justice. Can you hold on to that? I know it's a slender thread like the green shoot from Jesse's stump, but I promise you there is more light yet to break forth, and we will not see it coming either. But we will celebrate it when it comes without rubbing it in anyone's face. Because although we always hear about being people of faith, what do people of faith say? You all are people of faith. What do people of faith want? I believe we're really people of trust. And that's the language I'm going to start to use. We are the people of trust, and the people of trust never give up. Why? Because Advent, thy name is upside downness. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.